Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. We began this wonderful chapter last Lord's Day where we understood that even though we struggle daily with sin, as Paul elaborated on in chapter 7, we all find ourselves doing the things that we don't want to do, the things that we do want to do, we're, we're not doing. Paul had confessed that this was sin that still dwelt within him. And then he asked that question, who will save me from this body of death because of the wretched man that he is? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in chapter 8, he begins to elaborate further on that, that great blessing that has come to us through Christ. And he says those wonderful words, therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And what an encouragement that this is, because we find ourselves, again, doing the things that we don't want to do. Daily, we find ourselves thinking things that we shouldn't or saying things that we shouldn't, dishonoring the Lord in one way or another. And so at times we have a struggle with assurance, wondering how it is that we could still be children of God because of what we are doing, what we had found ourselves in. And yet what is reiterated to us is even in the midst of struggling in this life, there is still no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about why. We talked about because it is Christ's work, it is Christ's life, it is Christ's righteousness that brings us into favor with God. It's not your performance, it's not your good works, it's not checking off your boxes to make sure you're doing this and this every day. It is based upon Christ himself because Christ was the one who lived the perfect life, actively fulfilling the righteousness of the law of God. It was Christ who went to the cross and endured the very wrath of God against sin and satisfied the justice of God in our place. He's the one who, who rose again on the third day, conquering death, conquering all of his enemies, being vindicated for, to be who he was, to be who he claimed to be. He takes his seat at the right hand of God. He sends the Holy Spirit as the great blessing to gather his people and to apply the blessings of what he has accomplished upon them. It is all Christ and what he has done. And so that's the great news, that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He says that the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We looked at how it is that this could be taken in two different ways. One being the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. In this sense, that since Christ is the one who actively fulfilled the law of God because God demands, because he is holy, God demands absolute perfection to come into his presence, to gain his favor, to have his favor, and we cannot do that. And so his law that he gives to mankind, whether it's, whether it's generally speaking within the conscience of the Gentiles is what Paul had said, or you have the revealed will of God, according to his law that was, given to, that was given to Israel, the law stands against us in this sense that it can only condemn. So for the unregenerate, we look to the law or they look to the law, and the law stands to condemn them because they cannot fulfill what God has required of them. And so because Christ has fulfilled it, because Christ was the perfect one, it is his righteousness that actively kept the law of God perfectly that is now credited to your account. So that when God looks at you, no longer does he see a sinful rebel in, in opposition against him, but now he sees the righteousness of his son. He sees the righteousness of his son that has fulfilled his law perfectly. And so in that sense, the requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. And also we talked about how this could also be understood as the regulation of the law might be performed in us. Again, speaking of the new creations that we are in Christ, that whereas we were in opposition to the law, and we're going to see that in our text today, now because of the Holy Spirit within us changing us, giving us a new nature, giving us a new mind and heart and a will, that now we desire to carry out the things of God with genuine hearts. And so in that sense, it is fulfilled in us or being performed in us. And so today, as we look to these verses, verses 5 through 8, we're seeing many, many contrasts here that really are, are being elaborated on from what verse 4 said. 
He says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He starts this conversation in verse 4, contrasting the two, those who walk according to the flesh, those who walk according to the spirit. And now what are the characteristics of that? What does that look like with regards to their standing before God, our standing before God? And that's what Paul is is elaborating on in verses 5 to 8. He says some very difficult words in these verses here. He addresses the way that we think versus the way that we thought before. He addresses the existence of how we are now versus the state that we were in before. And he also addresses who it is that pleases God and those who do not. We like to think... We like to think that surely God is pleased with even even an unregenerate person doing something good that we would consider to be good. Maybe they're gaining some kind of a favor, but in reality they are not. For those that are in the flesh, those that are unregenerate, cannot please God. doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter... What good deed that they do that we consider to be good. It doesn't matter how sincere they are in their false form of worship. It doesn't matter. Those that are in the flesh are those who have not not embraced Christ, who have not received Christ. And as a result of that, they cannot please God. But these are the things that we need to hear. We need to understand who it is that can please God and who can't. Because there is so much uh, that is going on in our day where people are just trying to get along with everyone and sacrificing truth on the altar of peace. If you want to help others and you want to do good towards others, then you must tell them the truth. And they must be confronted with the difficult truths of Scripture. And I pray that today as we look to this passage verses 5 through 8, that one, we will be encouraged by it, one, that we will praise our Lord even more because of what he has done, especially at this time of year. I mean, considering that we're uh, in the Christmas season and it's all about giving gifts and all of this sort of thing, the greatest gift that mankind has ever received was Christ. And the benefits of what Christ has brought are elaborated here in these verses. So I pray it does increase your adoration of the God who saved you. So if you would, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we are looking at verses 5 through 8. And this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you that... As we look to this passage, as we work our way through it, that, Father, we would be even more appreciative of, of where you have brought us from. We thank you for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for the truths that it proclaims to us, the truths that it reminds us uh, of, of what Christ has done, what you have done in sending your Son, what the Holy Spirit has done in applying the benefits of what Christ has accomplished to our lives. Father, we pray that ultimately you would be glorified, Christ would be magnified, that the Spirit would rejoice within our hearts this day as we offer you the worship of our lips, as we offer you the worship of our hearts. Father, do a mighty work within us today, and may your word accomplish all you desire in us. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated.
So you'll notice, of course, verse 5 begins with the word for, and it is, of course, continuing that thought that was introduced to us in verse 4. We have two groups of people here. Those who walk according to the flesh, those who walk according to the spirit, they are being contrasted throughout these sets of verses here, throughout this set of verses. And he first addresses the difference between the two concerning their, their thoughts, concerning the thinking. So here's what he says. He says, for those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And this is this wording that is here. For those who are according to the flesh, that is, of the flesh, belonging to the flesh, is what is in view here. They set their minds, their frame of mind is on the things of the flesh. Now, talking about the flesh, he speaks of of humanity and its corruption and its moral decay and its rebellion. That's what's in view, speaking of the flesh. They set their minds on lawlessness on the world system that is currently in rebellion against our Lord. This is, this is speaking of how they think. They think or have this particular frame of mind. Yet we wonder why it is or how it is that you can have so many things that go on in our day and, and that are just ridiculous And you scratch your head and you say, how can this be? How can people fall for this? How can people think that this is real? How can people do their work this way? And various things that you can throw in there. Don't they know what is right? Don't they know what God has ordained, et cetera, et cetera? They don't think like believers do. If you can just stop for a minute and just begin to think, what was your thought process like? Before you were converted to Christ. How did you think? How did you view the world? How did you view your own set of morals at the time? There are times that I look back and I wonder. What was I thinking? How did I say that? Or how did I think that was okay? Or how did I do those things without any conviction of heart? How is that? Because if you belong to the corrupt system of the world, you are still in your corruption, then you are, you are not alive to the things of God. And so you are under the dominion of sin, as we've been talking about. And so that's the way you think. You think according to your old nature. You think according to the old pattern. The natural self that Paul says is dead in trespasses and sin, that by nature children of wrath you know Moses says in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 8 that the thought and the intent of man's heart is only evil continuously that his thoughts are evil from his youth how is that that's the natural state that we find ourselves in just as we've been talking about you got to remember Paul is elaborating on the things that he has already spoken of earlier in Romans that you have two representatives You have Adam, which represents the natural man. You have Christ, which is the new man, the new creation. And so in Adam, in your natural state, it is fallen, it is corrupt, and this is the pattern by which you think. People often ask the question, because it inevitably comes up, especially talking about if, if you get into those conversations about predestination, election, reprobation, all that sort of thing. Are you saying that people don't have free will? And here's what you have to remember. You have free will according to your nature. So in your fallen state that is only corrupt, dominated by sin, under the mastery of sin, you make decisions according to your nature. You make decisions that you desire things that you enjoy according to your fallen nature. It is only when God takes out your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, causes you to walk in his statutes, all that we, that we read of in Ezekiel 36. It is then 
that your life is now patterned after the Spirit of God, that you have a new mind and a new heart and new affections and a, and a, a desire to do the things of God. And so now you make decisions according to your new nature. So for the unregenerate, they make decisions all the time. They choose to do what they choose to do, and it is in accordance with the desires of their fallen, wicked hearts, just as it was for you and me before God saved us. How is it that they can do the things that they do? Because they're sinners. You cannot have these big expectations of people that are unregenerate. They are sinners. They are in rebellion against God. They are dominated by sin, just as you and I were. Yet we talk about things like that. We talk about how we've been rescued by the Lord. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We talk about how we were dead in our transgressions and now we're made alive. And yet, and even reminding ourselves of those things, when we look to the, the, the state of our country, for example, we look at the state of, of how people are and what they are doing, we say, how can they do this? And it should be a reminder to you. They do it because they are dead in their transgressions and sins. What is it that they need? Do they need a great political ruler? No. They don't. Do they need someone to lead them to, this is the morality you need to adopt? No. You know what they need? They need to hear the good news of Christ. Because it is only through the gospel that God brings his people to faith. So apart from that, their thinking is corrupt. They belong to the domain of darkness. They are kept in custody to sin under its mastery is what we went through beginning in chapter 6. And they do what is natural to them, which is to think the way that they do, to act the way they do, to say the things they do. But you know what this does present to us? Another contrast here. For those that are according to the flesh, who belong to the flesh, they set their minds, they have this frame of mind on the things of the flesh, the corruption of the state that they are in, but... Those who are according to the Spirit, those who are of the Spirit or belong to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And the idea there is they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now this is, this is very helpful to us, one, to understand that there are only two groups of people in the world. There are only two ways of thinking. Either you think according to the flesh or you think according to the Spirit. Either you belong to the domain of darkness or you belong to the kingdom of the beloved son. There is no line to straddle here. It is either one or the other. All mankind belongs to one of two groups. And you think about the apostle Paul as he is writing to the Romans. And he is speaking of, of these very things to those that were once in darkness. Perhaps those who even may be among the assembly of Jews and Gentiles particular Roman church who are still straddling the line for those Jews who still think perhaps that they can keep the law or that they have the law and they are still in good standing with God though they have rejected Christ and Paul is making it very clear to them there is no line here that you can straddle you're either on one side or the other and so what is he reminding them of consider the way you think for those that belong to the Spirit of God, they think according to the Spirit. They, they think the things of God. They desire the things of God. They view the world with a Christian worldview and understanding of knowledge and truth and morality and, and all of these things through the lens of the Christian faith. Because it is indeed the Christian faith that gives a solid foundation for truth for knowledge, for morality. It is the Christian faith that gives the, the answers to life. Where do we come from? What is our value? What is the basis of our morality? Where are we going? 
You are a special creation of God. You're an image bearer of God. And because you're an image bearer of God, you have dignity and you have value. Regardless if you're a regenerate person or an unregenerate person, all people have intrinsic value because they are a creation of God. What do we base our morality upon? The very law of God that the unregenerate are hostile towards. And where are we going? As he says here in these sets of verses, it's either death or life. They're thinking for those that belong to the spirit. They are now patterned after the spirit. They have been born again. They've been born of born from above, as the scripture tells us. And so now the scripture tells us that you have the mind of Christ. You are alive to the things of God. You understand the reality of things. And this has been granted to you. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, this doesn't mean what he is saying here, that an unbeliever cannot do something that we would regard as good. It doesn't mean that a believer always does what is good, because Paul just said in chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. It's sin that dwells in me. So he's not saying that. But he is saying that the bent of their lives are different. For those that are in the flesh, they are inclined towards wickedness. For those that are in the spirit, they are inclined towards the righteousness of God. To live their lives according to their, to their natures. The one belonging to the spirit, his thoughts are shaped by the Holy Spirit. His worldview is shaped by the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his word. He looks to God for guidance. He ponders on what is good and right in the eyes of God. Does that mean that we do it perfectly? No, not at all. But again, what is the inclination of the person? Are they inclined towards the things of God? Are they inclined towards the things of the flesh? Now, elaborating further on that, addressing the way that the regenerate think versus the way that the unregenerate think, he also talks about the state in which we find ourselves. He says in verse 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Now, he could have said something to the effect of, you know, the mindset on the flesh results in death. But that's not what he says. He says, For the mindset on the flesh is death. And if you've been here on a Wednesday night, and you've heard Richard talk about the word is. We gloss over it so, so often. But what does it mean to exist, right? It is. He says, for the mindset on the flesh is, exists in the state of death. And what is he referring to? Well, he elaborates even more or explains further what that means in passages like Ephesians chapter 2 or in Colossians using very similar language. You are dead, spiritually dead. You are not mostly dead, a little bit alive. You're dead, spiritually dead to God. This is the problem with some of our forms of evangelism because we think the person is a little bit alive that if we give a persuasive argument for the Christian faith or we keep going and we keep going or we use a manipulation tactic or something like that that they will indeed come to faith but the fact of the matter is they exist in a state of death they are dead to God they are spiritually dead They have no affection for God. They only have affection for God after their own liking. They are dead in their transgressions and sin. So we've already explained a little bit of what it means to be dead, spiritually dead. 
You're not alive to God. You have no affection for God. And if you take what Paul said earlier in Romans 3, there are none righteous, not even one. There are none who seek after God, not even one, etc., etc. That is describing what it is to be in a state of death. You're dead to God. You're alienated from the life of God that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, living according to the flesh results in death, eternal death. The second death, the scripture uses a variety of language there. But even at the present, and that's the point, this kind of life doesn't result, doesn't just result in eternal death. It is in a continued, continued state of being spiritually dead to God. The mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the spirit exists in a state of, of life and of peace. He has spiritual life because the one who has life in him has granted this life. Remember what John said in John chapter 1? It was verse, was it verse 4? Uh, in him was life. And that life was the light of men that Christ came to give life. And, and as he gives life, he is shining that light in the darkness. And light is often used for the true knowledge of God within the scripture. He gives life to dead people. That they can have a true knowledge of God, a true, true understanding of, of who God is, what God has done. A true, a true understanding of, of their state prior to their conversion, that they understand that they were sinners before a holy God, deserving of his wrath and deserving of his justice. To understand what it is that Christ had done, he just, he, when we look to the cross, and this is one of the problems that we have with, with programs or with movies that depict the, the crucifixion of Christ, that you only see him on a cross. You see what man has done to him. That man has beat him, man put a crown of thorns on him, man has nailed him to this tree. But what you don't see is the most important part. Because what he did was he, take, he takes upon himself the wrath of God against sin and he suffers on behalf of others and he satisfies the justice of God. You can't depict that in a movie. But because of what he has done, this is, this is the basis for him giving life to others and when you have the new mind that is granted to you, the new life that is given to you, these are the things that you come to understand. This is what he done. It wasn't just what man did to him, the great suffering that he endured on what man has done, but think of the great suffering that he endured with receiving the wrath of God. We can't even imagine that. We don't know what that's like. But people say, well, but when you talk about the wrath of God, we talk about... You know, hell, and we talk about um, burning and being in fire and all of this sort of thing. It is very true that Christ endured the very wrath of God on the cross, meaning what, whatever it is that the unbeliever endures in hell is what Christ endured on the cross, and it ain't fire. Because if you think of this, when you think of what heaven is, and you think of the beauty of heaven, and you think about passages like Richard had shared with us on Wednesday, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And you begin to look at those passages that try to, to give us an understanding of what heaven looks like with, with gates of pearl and streets of transparent gold and all of this beauty and majesty that we find within the scriptures trying to give us an understanding. The reality of heaven is far greater than the symbols that are being used. So that when you look to the opposite... And when you look at, at hell, and you look at the, the final hell, what the Greek word Gehenna, meaning the, the eternal state, for the unregenerate, one of the worst things we could ever think of is burning in the flame and never being consumed. But the reality of hell is far greater than the symbol that's being used. So that when we have this new mind that is granted to us, this new mind to understand what it is that Christ has done in order to give us life, then it does result in this peace that he refers to as well. 
this peace can be this tranquility of heart. William Hendrickson, he says this, The inner assurance that past sins are forgiven, that present events, no matter how painful, are being overruled for good, and that nothing might occur in the future will be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ. Such peace means basic freedom from fear and from restlessness. It implies contentment, a sense of security, and inner tranquility. A quietness of heart, knowing that you have peace with God. It also carries with it an idea of the blessings that you receive in him. Just uh, as a few verses there that do indeed give us that, that inner peace and knowing that we have peace with God. But think of the, the blessing that is coming too as a result of that peace. And a very familiar passage of scripture in Luke chapter 1. And I'll start in verse 76 to verse 79. This is Zechariah's prophecy. <clears throat> he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Here it is. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, that does refer to that inner quietness of the soul, you could say, that tranquility of heart. But also, it implies something more to guide us into the way of peace. If you just begin to think about the Old Testament and how the Lord spoke to his people, not only did he give them peace and give them tranquility of heart, but he blessed them. This is also implied in chapter 2 of Luke. In verse 14 and verse 29, he says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Not only that inner assurance, having that peace with God, but it implies even, even the good things, perhaps, that God would give, as some commentators have pointed out. In verse 29, this is after our Lord is presented at the temple. And this, these are the words <clears throat> that were spoken at his dedication, or his being offered at the temple. He says... Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, he's speaking of being privileged to see the salvation of Israel, the promised Messiah that would bring peace that would bring that inner assurance, all of those things. And yet at the very same time, the fact that he was able and privileged to see the Christ as God had promised him, that was a blessing in itself from God. So not only having peace is that inner assurance, knowing that you have peace with God, but it is also being a recipient of the good things of God because there is peace. Knowing what God has done in Christ. You know, think of what he says that later on in chapter 8. He says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. But delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Not health and wealth stuff. But just blessing from God. Favor from God. Good things from God. Christ has come to give us life and to give us peace. A peace that the world cannot give. A peace that surpasses all understanding and the good things that accompany that blessing. The mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and it is peace. These are the very things that Paul's readers are are trying to, to have is peace with God. 
But as Paul has said to his Jewish audience, unless you are united to Christ, one, there can be no life. There can be no peace. You are still in your transgressions. And the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But think of what God has given to you, dear friend. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. This is not something that you did to be able to live in this kind of state with this kind of blessing. This is something that God has done for you. He has raised you up with Christ, united him. You are united to him because of the spirit of God who lives within you, who has taken up residence within you. You have a new mind and a new heart and new desires. You are walking according to the spirit in order that you may do the things that are good and pleasing in the sight of God. And we'll get to that later. But these are things that has accompanied your salvation in Christ, a salvation that was provided to you through God alone. Your salvation was not his doing and yours. It was his. And that's what enriches salvation so much is to know that I didn't do it. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't. I wasn't just smarter than somebody else. And I made a decision. I think I need to embrace Christ. I was smarter than the other guy. I made the right decision. No. That's not how it works. I want you to hear these words again. And I want you to ask yourself, who did the work? Who do I need to thank? In Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And I love these words. There was an intervention here. But God. Think of that. This is the path of my life. This is where I was headed. But God. He intervened. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who made you alive in Christ? It wasn't you. Your path was according to the course of this world. You were indulging in the desires of the flesh. But God. He intervened. He made you alive in Christ. You didn't make yourself alive. And there's the emphasis. By grace you have been saved. Think of what you have received from God. This life that he has given you. The spiritual life that he has given you. This eternal life that he has given you. This peace that he has given to you. These blessings that he has given to you. Do you appreciate it? Are you thankful? Because the opposite could be true of you. You could still be in the flesh. You could still be dead in your sins. But God. What does it mean? The mindset on the flesh is death. Why? Why is that? Well, he, he says in verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh that has that frame of mind is hostile towards God, an enemy of God. There's enmity here. There is, there is no neutrality here. If you, are an, if, you, if you have the two together there, you have a regenerate and an unregenerate person, there is not neutrality on the part of the unregenerate when it comes to the Lord. All you have to do is just start saying things of God's law. And you will find some opposition very quickly. Why? Because they're enemies of God. You were an enemy of God. At one time you were. You were hostile towards God. Not only were you hostile towards God, but that was manifest in not subjecting yourself to the law of God. That's what he says. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Now, this is a very interesting uh, statement here because in the original language when it is saying, for it does not subject itself, it is actually in, in, in the passive voice. Interestingly, it's in the passive voice instead of the active voice. And it is showing us that this is natural to the unbeliever. That God doesn't have to do anything in, to make them actively aggressive towards his law. They are that by nature. But what is implied in that? The implication is, is that those who are according to the Spirit do subject themselves to the law of God. And why do they do so? Because back in these other chapters of chapter 6 and 7, uh, 6 specifically, verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were con committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And that is also in the passive voice, meaning that this is a work God has done to you. So if the unbeliever naturally will not subject itself himself to the law of God, the implication is, is that because you are now made slaves of righteousness by this work of God, you are passive in it. He's the one that did the work. You do subject yourself to the law of God. I think of the, again, think of, just consider the contrast there. Think of the things that are going on today. Why are you, like we talked about last, last Lord's Day, why are you in opposition towards abortion? Why are you in opposition to the LGBT stuff going on and the transgender stuff? Why? Why are you in opposition to faulty business practices or unjust judges that are not judging righteously? Or how about some of the civil magistrates or the other leaders that we have? Why is it that you stand opposed to their unjust rulings or their unjust leadings? Why? It's not really affecting you, right? But why? Because the law of God has now become your delight. The law of God has now become your standard of understanding what is good and right. And because this work in you has been done and the Spirit has, has made you alive to the things of God. And one of the promises of the new covenant was, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, but I will write my law on their hearts. It's no longer on tablets to stand there to condemn you. Now it's written on your heart that these are the things that you desire to do and that you stand firm on. And so you do subject yourself to the law of God. The moral law of God can be summed up and I say summed up in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean that that's all the moral law, but they're summed up in the Ten Commandments. And we look to those laws and we say to our leaders, this is right and this is wrong. We say to others that we meet that are, that are in favor of, of murdering babies in the womb, this is wrong. We say to others that say, I should have been this gender. That's wrong. Because God doesn't make mistakes. And your identity is not based in whatever gender that you're trying to identify as. Or whatever sexuality that you're trying to put forth to everybody. Your identity is found in being an image bearer of God. That's the starting point. And so for those that are in the Spirit, we do subject ourselves to the law of God. The law of God is not done away. Not at all. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
And when you look at those kingdom parables in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is here, it is now, it is in you, etc., etc. What law then does a citizen of the kingdom abide by? The law of God. And that's why you delight in it. You subject yourself to it. But look at this, though. He says that the unregenerate or the mind that is set on the flesh that is hostile towards God is not even able to do so, meaning not even able to subject itself to the law of God. It doesn't have the ability. This Greek word dunatai means having the ability. The unregenerate does not have the ability to subject themselves to the law of God, to carry out those things, or to seek God's favor by doing these particular things. Now, why is it that we would see perhaps some unregenerate doing the things that God has said, or not doing the things that God has commanded not to do? They're in favor of not murdering, at least generally speaking. Why would they be in favor of not committing adultery? Why would they be in favor of not stealing? They do agree on some things when it comes to the Christian morality, but they can't understand why. They can't give a solid foundation as to why they agree. What's good for society? According to who? Maybe in our society, maybe it would be better if we did steal each other's stuff. Who are you to tell me any differently? It's probably best that we don't murder. Why? Maybe if I go ahead and kill you, I can go ahead and take your stuff. Well, that's not good for society. Who says? So even though they adopt Christian morality and they would agree with the things that are contained in the law of God, they don't know why. They can't give a solid foundation as to why they agree with those things. But again, it is only within the Christian faith that you have a solid, objective foundation for morality, for right and wrong, what is good and pleasing. But they do not do these things understanding that this is what God has commanded. That is not what is in their view. They don't say we shouldn't murder and I agree with that because God says not to murder. They're not able to subject themselves to the law of God. They don't have the ability to do so. They don't have the ability to carry it out to seek favor with God. Not even able to do so. And then, verse 8, lastly, not even able to please God. When he says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, it's the same word, dunatai, cannot, do not have the ability to please God. But you are granted the ability to please God. Whenever you're seeing these contrasts and you're seeing the negative part of it, you need to think of the positive of it too. Yes, this is the state of the unregenerate, a place in which you were once there. But because of the work of God in you, this is what you are privileged to do, able to do, desirous to do, which is to please God. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Is God pleased with their good deeds? No. Is God pleased with their acts of kindness? No. Is God pleased when they make a good choice concerning what is actually right? No. He's not. Why? Because he just said that those who are in the flesh, in their corruption, cannot please God. They don't have the ability. To be pleasing to him. To be accepted by him. The only means by which one can be accepted by God is what? Christ. And that's it. Again, just like he was talking about at the very beginning. You either think this way or you think this way. And that's manifesting your very nature. Whether you're unregenerate or you're regenerate. There's no neutrality. There is no line to straddle. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. All this language that we find within Scripture, it's either one or the other. And if you are in that category of being in the flesh and the unregenerate, you cannot please God. <clears throat> one writer says this. This is a little lengthy, but let's give our ears to it. 
That mind with which we are all born is enmity against God. And however much refined or polished a man may be, however amiable, friendly, or polite, however he may shine amongst his fellow creatures, if he has not had a new heart and a right spirit, he is at enmity against God. And he cannot enter heaven until there, there have been a divine change wrought in him. Some of you suppose because you have never been guilty of any vice, because you have not indulged in any great transgression, that therefore you do not require the work of regeneration in your hearts. You will be mightily mistaken if you continue under that delusion until the last great day. For to be carnally minded, even though that carnal mind is in a body that is dressed in silks and satins, to be carnally minded is death. Even though it be whitewashed till it looks like a spiritual one, to be carnally minded, even though you sowed the carnal mind with a few good garden seeds of the flower of morality, will still be nothing but damnation to you at the last. To be carnally minded is death. Only to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. End quote. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Nothing that they do can please God. They are enemies of God. They don't subject themselves to the law of God. They are hostile towards God. And that is the natural state of man. Maybe we think of enemies of God being those that advocate for the things that are blatantly against the law of God or those that talk all kinds of nonsense against, against the Lord and all of that. But understand this, that any unregenerate, any unregenerate, no matter how kind that they are, no matter how much that we love them, no matter what kind of a wonderful relationship that we may have with them, which I'm sure all of us have unregenerate friends and family whom we love dearly, you have to understand that they unregenerate regardless of who they are. They are enemies of God. They are enemies of God. And God stands in opposition against them. Now that's not really wonderful news. Maybe it doesn't make us feel good. But if you have friends and family whom you love that are unbelievers, the greatest thing that you can ever do for them, dear friend, is to tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Let me, let me back up just for a second. Tell them the truth in a loving way. I had some family one time that uh, they had this particular sibling that was dating this unbelieving girl who was actually you know, within another um, belief system. And she thought she did a good deed by telling her sibling's girlfriend, you're going to burn in hell. And that's what she said. That's how she said it. But she was so proud of herself to say, well, I told her. I told her. Like, well, yeah, you told her. But that's not the way to present God's truth. Because even though you're given bad news, you also have good news to give. Here's the bad news. Right now you're an enemy of God. But here's the good news. Jesus died for sinners. Right now you're ungodly before God. But here's the good news. Christ died for the ungodly. Right now you're in a state of unbelief and you reject Christ. But to those who receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There is good news to give. But that good news cannot be given if you don't give the bad news first that they understand they're standing before God. The truth is what sets people free. The truth of God. The truth of the gospel. So for our loved ones, we tell them the truth. For friends that we have, we tell them the truth. Because it is the gospel that God uses to bring his people to faith. 
Now, on the other side of the coin, think of this. Those in the flesh cannot please God. But what's implied there is that you can. You can please God. You can please God by how you live. By, by subjecting yourself to the law of God, yes. By your great love that you have, that the Spirit has wrought within your heart towards God, yes. You can please God. And it's not a mystery. It's not a mystery what God is pleased with. You know, this isn't a pagan religion where you have to try to figure out, well, what is this particular God pleased with? All that is nonsense. You have the one true God, the one living, true living God that has made himself known, made himself known especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's like, you look through the life of Christ. And he has told us in his word very clearly what is pleasing to him. And so you have the ability to do so. And why is it you have the ability? Because the Spirit of God intervened in your life made you alive, gave you a new heart, and applied the salvation that Christ purchased for you to your life. This is good news. You have received such a gift of God. An amazing gift that cannot be expressed with enough adjectives to describe the goodness of God in this. But it's a gift that you have received. Are you thankful for it? Are you grateful to God? Or do you only look at the things that you don't have? You only look at the negative things of life. And you're not appreciative of what you have received. This doesn't mean you're an unbeliever. But it does mean that you need to work your priorities out to understand what you have received in him. You have received the greatest gift that can ever be given to mankind. Not just eternal life. It's not just about living forever. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the great blessing of salvation and the gift that Christ has given to us that we may know the one true God. The one who created everything, the one who sustains it by his very power, is the one that we are privileged to call Father. So as you enter into this Christmas season, it's not about what all the hoopla that we get caught up with. We consider Christ at this time of year and we consider, regardless if you don't get what you want for Christmas, if you're asking for something, you've received the greatest gift from God, which is Christ Jesus. So let us be appreciative of that. Let us glorify God because of that. Let us be grateful that the carnal mind, those that are in the flesh are no longer us. And it wasn't our doing, but his. You have much to be thankful for, dear Christian. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for these wonderful blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus. That our thinking has been changed. The state in which we exist has been changed. That we are privileged then to please you by our very life. And this, all of these things have been brought about by Christ. His work applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for this gift of salvation. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to, to understand it even more. As much as we are able, that we would indeed be so grateful. Sometimes, sometimes we, we don't understand uh, what all had taken place, the high cost of our salvation Father, remind us. Help us, Lord, to see it as we study through your word, as we read through your word and delight in your word. Help us, Lord, and make these realities uh, even, even more evident to us that we would appreciate you even more. Be so thankful, so thankful. So thankful that you didn't leave us 
in the state of death, but you gave us life. Father, to you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. And we pray for anyone here that does not know you, that today, Father, that you would do a mighty work within their hearts, that you would grant them the heart of flesh, that you would apply the gospel to their hearts, that they would call upon Christ in faith. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.